invite you to join me this morning in scripture reading. I will be reading from Matthew 9, verses 35 to 38. Um, You're welcome to follow along on whatever device you have, your own Bible. I will be reading from the Bible found underneath the church pews, the um, Canadian or Christian Standard Bible. So Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It's great to see you all. Um, My name is Jeff, and uh, I serve as one of the pastors here. And this morning I have the honor of... uh, reflecting on this passage together and uh, seeing what God would have for us as individuals and for us as a church. Uh, Before I get into that, I did want to give you an update on our Christmas giving project. Um, Over uh, two years ago, we set a goal, a quite audacious goal of raising $100,000 over two years. And uh, the the purpose of this uh, money was to build a, a a fence that would actually protect the property of of a school in Burundi. So every year, if you don't know, every year we raise funds for a project at the school, and uh, it was identified as a need. There was growing concern for theft on the property, uh, but more than that, for the dorm that was now built on the property for actual um, security, particularly for if there to be girls staying on property, they needed that to be safe. And so we thought, can we take care of this as a church? So. We've, we, over the last two years, have this goal of raising $100,000. And so after two years, I'm really happy and excited to report to you that we raised $98,102. And so that is an incredible amount of money. And so I know even at the end of the year, um, to give above and beyond, even to meet our budget and other things like a capital campaign project, for us as a church to be able to actually value something like this is incredible. And so um, this money, I mean, I get, to, I get to go there more often than many of you. Um, and so I get to see in person um, the impact of, of these projects. And um, it's, a, it's a privilege for us to be able to be a part of the work um, that God is doing in this part of the world. So thank you for what you're doing and sacrificing to be part of this project. So um, yeah. So we'll give you updates as, as we kind of un, uh, actually start to build the fence and as it actually starts to um, come about. So I wanted to give you that update. Um, secondly, just wanted to say that this is our last Sunday in a sermon series. We're taking the next 30 years to go through the book of Matthew. And, uh, and so we're on Matthew chapter 9, as was read for us by Shar. And, uh, and so today we're going to take a little break after today, and then we're going to uh, move on to a, a new series next week on prayer. 
Um, and so we're excited for that. So um, t- this is our last uh, little look into the gospel uh, according to Matthew. Uh, and then we'll, we'll move on. Um, and so uh, let me just pray and then we'll get into it. And so, um, God, we, we come to you this morning and uh, by faith, uh, we believe that you are here among us, that you're present with us in, in this room. And God, we know that you are a God of revelation and that you seek to not hide yourself from us, but you want us uh, to know you and to know your will. And so this morning, God, we just pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts, uh, give us a sense of your uh, leading in our lives as we consider your words and how you taught your disciples. And so God, would you, yeah, just speak to us this morning. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so um, there's this a really beautiful picture in the book of Isaiah, chapter 52. Uh, the city of Jerusalem um, had just been destroyed by Babylon, which was the, the great empire of the time. And all the Jewish people had just been taken captive and uh, sent into exile. But there remained just a few people left in the city of Jerusalem. And they were left wondering, what has happened? Has God abandoned us? The Jewish people had always understood themselves to be the light to the nations. They had always understood that uh, they were, as was promised to their forefather Abraham, to be a blessing to the world, that the nations of the world would be blessed through them. And here they are sitting in an abandoned or destroyed city, and most of their people had been taken off into exile, held captive uh, by a mighty empire. And to add to this, Isaiah is saying to them that Jerusalem's destruction, the destruction of their city, was a mess of their own making. That they had turned away from God, they had become corrupt, and so their city and temple were destroyed. And so everything seemed lost. But then Isaiah says, um, in this passage in Isaiah 52, that there's a watchman on the city. And, And the watchman sees a messenger running in the distance. He's running towards the city, and the messenger is, is shouting, good news, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those that bring good news. And he calls their feet beautiful because the message that this messenger is bringing is beautiful. And the message is this, that despite Jerusalem's destruction... Israel's God still reigns as king. And that God himself is going to one day return to the city, take up his throne, and bring peace to the world. And says the watchmen shout for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now, in the New Testament, we find this phrase, good news, all over the Gospels. It's sometimes translated as gospel. 
And in scriptures, this phrase is always about the announcement. The type of news that, it, that is good is the announcement of a new, the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the gospel writers use that phrase to summarize all of the teachings of Jesus. That is why the, the, the books themselves are called gospels. It is the gospel, it's the good news of this new reign according to Matthew. And they say that Jesus went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. Jesus was proclaiming, was a messenger of the arrival of a new kingdom. But the way that Jesus described God's reign uh, was very surprising to everybody. Now, if, if you think about an empire or kingdom, I know we don't use that language kingdom so much anymore. If you think of empires, um, they're powerful. You know, an, a successful uh, empire needs to be strong. It needs to be able to impose its will. And it needs to be able to defeat its enemies because there's going to be people competing for their kingdoms and their empires. But Jesus said that the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest and the one who loves and serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking their peace. And so this seemed like everyone, to everyone, as Jesus is talking about a new kingdom arriving, like a, a, an upside-down kingdom, the, the reverse of how we typically think about how kingdoms are established and how they exert their reign. But Jesus brings the news, the good news, of a different kind of kingdom. And how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those that bring good news. So what does this have to do with Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38? Now, I don't know if you noticed, but the very first verse in this section is that Jesus was going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching what? The good news of the kingdom. And not only was he preaching the good news of the kingdom, it says that he was also healing every disease and every sickness that was among the crowds. And so God's reign was not just being talked about as an event in the future that is coming one day, but it was, there was a sense in which it was being brought into their lives in the very present. And this isn't the first time that Jesus is talking about a new kingdom. The term kingdom appears... 53 times in 42 different places in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew has 28 chapters. And so Jesus was constantly talking about God's kingdom. And this is how he framed what he was doing. And to provide some context as to where we are in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, I have a little um, image up there. Matthew's chapter 1 and 2 is the is really talking about the birth of a king. And a lot of royal language and descriptions are used to describe that. In Matthew chapter 3 and 4, Matthew describes the inauguration of the kingdom, where Jesus 
uh, is baptized, and then he's go, he goes into the wilderness. And what is the temptation that the tempter brings before him right away? He says, I will, he says, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these if you bow down and worship me. The temptation to Jesus immediately as he begins his ministry is these kingdoms can be yours if you do this my way. What does Jesus say immediately after coming out of the wilderness? What's the first words that he says? Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, in his ministry, repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew, is really describing what life in the kingdom looks like. This upside-down kingdom that people are trying to understand. This is Jesus' big explanation, a collection of his sayings, his teachings, describing what a person operating in the kingdom of God would look like and what they would value. And now in chapters 8 to 9, Jesus brings the kingdom into reality, into the day-to-day lives of people. And so in chapters 8 to 9, we're told nine stories of Jesus bringing God's power into the lives of hurting and broken people. Nine different stories of Jesus' power coming in to the lives of people. Jesus demonstrates his power over sickness. He demonstrates his power over uh, death. Jesus demonstrates his power over nature. And he 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 demonstrates his power over the demonic. Jesus is demonstrating that in God's kingdom, every part of our broken world that has been corrupted by sin is now being overpowered, and the effects of that brokenness are beginning to be undone. And so after nine examples of Jesus demonstrating his power and inviting people to follow him in this new way of life, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, do not conclude that Jesus is from God. They actually conclude that he's more like a a double agent of sorts and that he seems to be doing good, but actually he's doing evil. And verse 34, which is the verse just before what we just read, says that the Pharisees reported that he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. And so the religious leaders are seeing this Jesus talking about God's kingdom and they're suspicious and they don't trust him. In fact, they say, no, he's actually the enemy in disguise. That's what's going on here. And so it was this kind of response to what God was doing that led Jesus to say that the crowds were like sheep without a shepherd. This phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is is a regular uh, Old Testament way of describing Israel when it did not have a prophet or a king to look after them and to show them the right way to go. You can see this in Numbers 27, 1 Kings 22, Ezekiel 34. This is a common phrase in which Jesus is, is identifying rightly that the people did not have a prophet or a king to lead them. In the right way. So Jesus saw that 
the Jewish people didn't have the leader that they needed. And even though many of them were quite sinful in what they were doing, Jesus' response to the crowds was not condemnation. He did not come to condemn. He's not seeing them, you know, without, a, without leadership and, and, and living aimlessly and, and many, in many ways sinfully, saying, I'm now condemning you for how bad you've screwed up and how sinful you are. This is not the posture of Jesus when he comes. It says that he had compassion on them. When he saw the crowds, it says, he felt compassion for them, for they were like a sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd. God's response to people is compassion. God does not come to you in your life with a spirit of condemnation. He sees you in your distress and your dejection, and he comes to you in a in compassion to rescue you. Does God condemn sin in this world? Yes, and we're grateful that he does. But for you as a person, God is not coming to you in a spirit of condemnation. He comes to you in compassion. He is a good shepherd. This is what shepherds do. They take care of their sheep. And so Jesus started to heal the sick and confront evil. He was beginning to provide the leadership that they were longing for, and he was beginning to lead them in the right way of life, which is another way of saying righteousness. He was leading them into righteousness. But those who had their own agenda, those who had hoped to be the standard bearers for the kingdom, were caught up in their own ideas of what kingdom looked like. And it was them being caught up in their own vision of what the kingdom would look like for themselves that actually made them blind to the very thing that God was doing right in front of them. And it's interesting that in this context, it was those that had the greatest need who were so caught up in the brokenness of the world that just saw with clarity the good news that Jesus was bringing. And it was those who were seeking to control how things should go, the religious leaders at the time that missed what God was doing right in front of them. And so Jesus looked at the crowds and he saw them not only as sheep without a shepherd, but here he starts to change the farming imagery. And he says, they are like a field of wheat with nobody to harvest it. It says in verse 37, he says, The harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. The crowds were eager and ready for God's kingdom to come, but they didn't quite know what it looked like or where to find it. And so Jesus says to his disciples in verse 38, Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into the harvest. Now, outside of the Lord's Prayer, this is one of the only examples of Jesus directly telling his disciples what to pray for. He is saying, go to the farmer. You know, the, the Lord of the harvest is, you know, like the farmer. 
the one who planted it, the one who's caring for it, go to the farmer and beg him to send out workers to bring in this harvest. That's Jesus' prayer. That's his instructions for disciples to pray. Now, interestingly, what does Jesus do immediately after he instructs his disciples to pray this? What does Jesus do immediately after he instructs his disciples to pray this? Well, if you read the next verse in chapter 10, which I know we're not looking at, but we'll just peek at it. Jesus says, I'll I'll read it for you if you don't have to look it up, but look it up if you want. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits to heal every disease and sickness. And then he says, when you go out, say this. What could he possibly want them to say? The kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven has come near. What does Matthew tell us? Jesus has been doing for the last, in the last few chapters, Matthew has described for us that Jesus is going around to all the towns, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and every sickness. And what does he now tell his disciples to go and now do? Drive out impure spirits, heal every disease and sickness, telling them that the kingdom of God has come near. See, as his disciples prayed this prayer, the answer comes back to them very quickly that they themselves are to be the answer to their own prayer. Jesus asked them to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. And what does he immediately do? He sends them out as workers into the harvest. This is the way that it often works with our prayers, actually, that we become, God is wanting us to become the answer to the prayers that we are praying to him. And so I want to make just three kind of sub-observations about uh, this particular image that God gives us about harvesting. I, I want us to see that the primary way that God is working in this world is through people. And more specifically, God is working through the people of God. This is what this is a title for the, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, and this is a title now given to the church in the New Testament. Which means the regular way of answering that God uses to answer prayer involves us. We become co-laborers with God in this world. Can God bring in the harvest without workers? Of course he can. Can he get people who have no idea there is a field or that there is a harvest to bring in, can he get those people to work and accomplish his will in the way that he wants? Of course he can. But Jesus is instructing his disciples to ask him to send out workers. And so God is looking for willing obedient workers to take up the task of bringing in the harvest in this world. And this actually becomes the vocation of the church and for us, our vocation as Christians, to see ourselves in this way as bringing in the harvest that God has 
in this world. This means that it is all the more important that we are listening to his instructions on where and when to harvest. And so next week, we're going to be starting a new sermon series, as I said, on prayer, um, which is a critical part of actually not just asking God, but listening to God about what he would want us to be praying for and responding to. And so the first observation is that God actually wants to send laborers. The second is that Jesus portrays the crowds as of his day as being an abundant harvest. God is looking at a broken world, a world where his people are enslaved by a, a different kind of kingdom, and he sees a harvest ready to be brought in. Meaning there is a, a readiness to receive and accept the good news of the kingdom. Now, I think what I think has, has depending on the tradition you've come in, but if you grew up in an evangelical type of church, I think this imagery often um, goes in terms exclusively as evangelism and people's willingness to, to hear and respond to evangelism. And so in this way of thinking about it, you know, as the workers are evangelists and all we need to do is go out and share our faith, and we're told that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to say yes as we share our faith of invite people to accept Jesus as their Savior. Now, I think that's a, an, a critical part of what Jesus is asking as, as he sends out laborers into the world to bring in his harvest. But as we think about the kingdom of God coming into this world, the, the harvest that God is looking to bring in, that he's producing, is his kingdom coming into this world, which of course includes people responding and giving their allegiance to the king. But more than that, it is the kingdom of God coming into the present, where we bring it. And so it may feel like there is a, a resistance to, you know, sharing our faith. That might be our, that people are not, how, how many people are going to say yes if I actually share my faith frequently? But the, actually the position that Jesus wants us to have is that as we consider the crowds of our day, as we see brokenness in relationship with God, as we see brokenness with relationship with others, as we see brokenness in our relationship with creation, as we see brokenness in our relationship even within our very self, Jesus says there is a, there's a readiness, there is a brokenness that is ready to be responded to as the kingdom of God comes into this world. And so it's a huge encouragement for us, actually, to go out in boldness to, to see the opportunities for the kingdom of God to be expressed in this world. Yes, through evangelism, but more than that, in the fullness of the kingdom of God coming into this little place of the world where God has put us at this time. And the, 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 as God sees the world, he sees it as a harvest that's abundant, ready to be brought in. The third observation is that Jesus portrays himself as the Lord of the harvest. There are three images that regularly appear in the Gospels, and that is the gathering of sheep into a flock, the gathering of people at a banquet table, and the gathering of the harvest 
into the barn. Jesus uses this imagery of gathering in these three different ways around a banquet table to feast and enjoy as a sheep who are being cared for and as workers, as laborers in the field bringing in the harvest. In all of these examples, Jesus is always portrays himself as the gatherer, but he employs us as a community of co-workers to participate in the task. And so the harvest is so important to understand that the harvest is his. We are just the workers in his field and in his kingdom. This is a critically important distinction that actually provides the foundation that gives freedom for us to be kingdom workers in this world. God is not asking you to be the savior of the world. God is not asking this church to be the savior of Niagara-on-the-Lake or Niagara region. God is not asking any of us to take on the burden of being the saviors of the world. He is handling it. His invitation is to join him. Yes, the, the, it's, the scripture is clear. We are to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. But as one author says helpfully, this world is not ours to save. It is God's to save. And so when we can be unburdened by the weight of saving this world or saving people and not have that as a starting point of our, of our work in the world, but actually uh, by responding to invitation, to obedience and faithfulness, to a wonderful God who, who's a generous employee who gives us this incredible vocation to bring a be about, do about his work in this world, it changes the way in which we engage in, in sharing our faith in both word and deed. And so he is inviting us to join him in the work of the redeeming of this world. But the invitation is for us to work for the farmer and to trust him for the crop and to bow our knee to the king. You see, Jesus was not just someone who came as a messenger of the kingdom of God. What the disciples would slowly start to understand was that Jesus was also the king. That Jesus was God in flesh. And the question on everyone's mind as they slowly began to understand this kingdom that he was bringing in and slowly beginning to see that he himself was uh, more than just a messenger of this kingdom, the question they were asking themselves that was on all of their mind was, how was he going to bring about his reign over this world? You know, they saw his kingdom coming into like little situations and individuals' lives, and that was incredible to see and miraculous, but we're talking about it's going out into the whole world. How could it possibly go up against the powers of the Roman Empire? How could it possibly go up against the powers of the kingdom of darkness? How could it possibly go up against the powers of the sin within our very own hearts? Again, if you think about a powerful and successful kingdom, it needs to be strong. It needs to be able to impose its will 
It needs to be able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said, the greatest in the kingdom of God was the weakest and the one who loves and serves the poor. And he said, you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. And so, although no one expected it, it was the most consistent, obvious thing that Jesus could do. That Jesus brought in his reign over his world. He brought in the defeat of the great, mighty Roman Empire and the empires of this world. He brought in his defeat of the powers of the dominion of darkness. He brought in his defeat over the very sin within your and mine heart through an act of sacrificial enemy love. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king. It's, it's him actually in that act of sacrifice of laying down his life for his enemy, that it's in that very act that he's enthroned as king. He receives a crown out of mockery, but it's the truest crown anyone has ever received. He receives a robe to demonstrate his royalty. He's exalted up, not on a throne, but on a cross. And the good news is that Jesus has now defeated sin. He rose from the grave, and he reigns as king. And he has dealt with our sin and corruption himself. And that he conquered it with his life and with his love for us in this world. And now he sends us as followers to go out, to keep announcing through word and through deed the good news of this upside-down kingdom. And our task as the church is to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the true and right king, who defeated death with his love. This morning, we're going to be celebrating communion. Now, communion is a practice that was instituted by Jesus with his disciples before he was crucified. And it's a way to remind ourselves and to center us on the way of Jesus' enthronement, which was to lay down his life for his enemies. We believe that the communion was given to us as a sign that points us to Christ, whose body was broken for us and whose blood was shed to assure the salvation to all those who believe. And so by taking the bread and the juice we are identifying ourselves with the life of Christ given for the redemption of humanity. And as we take it, we're actually, it says, proclaiming his death until he comes again. This is also an incredible expression as we take this together at once of the fellowship that we now share and the unity that we have as we together believe in Christ. 
At its heart, communion is a, is a celebration and a giving thanks of what God has taken care of our greatest need through his death and resurrection. And so this morning, if you've put your faith in Christ's death and resurrection, if you've given your allegiance to him as king, you're invited to come to the table. To center yourself as we take the bread and the juice on the, the act that enthroned him as king and to dedicate ourselves to live in the way of Christ. Now, if that's not you, we are very glad you're here. Our hope for you is that you would take this as an opportunity to reflect on the message of Jesus and his invitation for your life. So I want to invite the servers to come up. We are going to have four stations here at the front. And we're asking uh, that you come up from your seat when, uh, when I say, uh, and uh, come to the front, take the juice and the bread and bring it to your seat. And, but don't take it right away because we're all going to take it together. And uh, you can come down the aisle, the two aisle, side aisles between the sections, um, come down those aisles, and then you're going to return to your seat in the center or the outside aisles, whichever is, is closer for you. Uh, if, if you need a gluten-free bread, uh, there is an option for you. It's just in a little smaller section of the plate. And if you are unable to come to the front for whatever reason, uh, we're going to have some uh, pastors walk around and uh, they'd be happy to serve you at your seat. So as they walk around, just wave at them and make sure uh, you get their attention and they'll serve you there. And so uh, let me pray and I'll invite you to come forward. And so God, we come to you grateful that we get to be recipients of your love and your grace. That God, you did not abandon this world. That although when all hope seemed lost, that you came into this mess that we've created. That you were faithful to your promise. That your everlasting love did not end. It did not come to an end when we rejected you, but you came in your love into your, with your compassion, into our mess, and you invite us to be a part of what you're doing. We are humbled before you as our king. And God, this morning, we again just want to even bow our knee to you as king. We confess that our heart has been in so many ways corrupted by the kingdoms of this world. Our heart has been corrupted in so many ways by our own selfishness and the, our own sin that exists within our heart. And so we, we bow our knee to you again this morning. We, we come to you as king. We declare you as the rightful, true king of this world. We're grateful for the love that you have for your enemies because we made ourselves your enemy and you laid down your life for us. And so, God, even as we come and we consider this again as we take communion, would you, would you make that a reality in our hearts and to send us out as people with enemy love who would lay down their life for a, a world that you love? 
And so thank you, Lord. We're, we're grateful for all that you've done, for your grace and for the forgiveness that we have in you. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.